Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. All right, welcome to Miked Up with Cairo. You've got Tim and Brandon. Uh, super excited to bring you this episode. It's going to be on dizziness. We're going to cover some other stuff. However, this is one of those diagnoses that can make or break your uh, practice, but can also really add to your practice. This is one of those diagnoses, or really I should say symptom, because vertigo isn't a diagnosis, it's a symptom, that uh, if we can make sure we have the right diagnosis, we can really help a different population of patients. So just a reminder, if you haven't yet hit the follow button, share this episode with a friend. It really does help us out to uh, reach more great DCs like yourself. Uh, but let's get into this episode. So the first thing that I want to go into before we dive into the um, cervicogenic vertigo, I want to talk about that patient. And that patient is the patient you went home and thought about that night. It's that patient that you can't stop thinking about. It's the patient that walks in your office and they circle the entire body picker. They circle their elbow, their hand, their left pinky toe, their ear, their nose, uh, and something uh, along their hip area. Dr. Bertelsman, what do you do for that patient? That patient that just sat down for you, you only have 15 minutes uh, to, to assess this person, to treat this person, and they have an encyclopedia of issues, or even worse, a handwritten list of the 17 things that have gone wrong with them since birth. So that's the good news. We have an incredible tool for this. It's called an associate. <laughs> uh, but short of that, um, that, that is a challenge. You know, I think back to one time one of my friends, a, a primary care provider, was waiting outside my office uh, for me to be treated. And I had one of those patients ahead of him, and I knew this was going to take forever. And unfortunately, I was right, and it did. And so when my friend came in, I, I uh, told him, you know, I'm sorry. I had one of those patients who had a list. And he said, oh, a list patient. He said, you know how to solve those. He said, when that patient takes out that list and tells you, you know, what was wrong, including what was wrong sometime three Thursdays ago for 12 minutes, he said, after they read the first one, you go up to them, you grab the list, you look at it carefully, you reread that first one, and then you move that list so far they can never touch it again. He said, and if they can't remember what happened to them, then chances are you don't need to treat it. So that's that's one tool. But now, you know, they, they do it by phone, so you can't really take their phone. Uh, me personally, I try to let them know that we have time to focus on one or two of their issues. That while I'd love to be able to solve all of those, we need to get to the core problems first. What are the one or two things that are really having the greatest impact on your life right now? Let's dive deep into those and give them our full attention, and then we'll we'll whittle the other ones off the list as we can. And I'm the exact same, and, and it's not so much that I'm being lazy or I'm trying to cheat them out of their time. It's that when it comes down to a certain complaint and a diagnosis, unfortunately, you're going to have to convey some information to that patient, give them some exercise, give them some pieces of things to do. Well, now if you're you know, going into several diagnoses, unfortunately, that list of exercises or that list of changes to their ADLs grows uh, you know, exponentially. So it's really for their own best uh, uh, you know, care to treat one thing at a time show a positive trend that you're that you're helping them and then as you see fit move into diagnosis one through 37. Um, and that, that's the way I look at it. And I don't feel like it's a, a disservice to my patient. In fact, I feel like I'm almost helping the patient more by getting them to focus on one thing at a time. 
You know, going into this podcast, uh, one of the most interesting things that we'll see in practice is neck pain. Uh, neck pain and headaches are the number two. Uh, unfortunately, this population of neck pain and vertigo, they are very common comorbidities. And we'll see this happen. And a lot of our, our patients will come with, uh, you know, whiplash type injuries and uh, in different problems. And, and dizziness is one of those um, kind of a uh, fun uh, friends that kind of come along for the ride. And we see that when we look at the research, you see 40% of people who have any kind of neck pain will also experience uh, a cervicogenic vertigo. So uh, a scary symptom, but very common. So it's really up to us to make sure we have the right diagnosis for these patients and to get them in the right bucket of what's causing their vertigo. Uh, so hopefully we can find the right strategy to help them. Yeah, excellent. You you referenced that study by Viral in December of 2021 that said 40% of neck pain patients have some degree of dizziness. So yeah, we're going to talk about dizziness today. We're going to dive deep into it. We also have a couple of webinars that you might want to check out. If you go to CairoUp.com in the resources tab up top, you'll see webinars. And we have two of them that you may be interested in. Number one is the uh, CAD webinar, the uh, cervical artery dissection. This was Tom Machad and James Demetrius and a couple other guys who um, put some great information together about how we can recognize these presentations and what we can do to help those patients. And then there's also a dizzy patient webinar. This was just a couple of months ago and it looks at the most common causes of uh, BPPV, cervicogenic vertigo, and of course the threatening causes as well. So the things that you and I don't wanna miss and how we manage the things that we can treat better than anybody else. You missed the most important part of that webinar. Um, that you weren't part of the second one? And so we we were not part of the, vert, well, we kind of were part of the Vertigo one, but not the, the headliners. And it's our most popular yeah. <laughs> our, our most popular webinar we've ever put out. We were not a part of it. We should take a, uh, take a, uh, a note of that. Um, I do want to bring up a very important um, article that I uh, did read. It just came out on World Neurosurgery. You read? Uh, no, the, across a newsfeed. Uh, this this came out that uh, apparently uh, YouTube is an unreliable source for information about lumbar spine disc herniations. I cannot believe that. That's where uh, most of our data came from. Uh, you know what's what is interesting though is that all the videos on Cairo Up used to be hosted on YouTube. Why did we stop doing that? Yeah, I think a number of reasons. One, it was inconvenient, but two, as soon as your video would play, somebody else's video that wasn't necessarily evidence-based would pop up afterwards. So it's just a confusing message for patients. And so we dumped them all into one platform. So now when your patients see a Cairo video, that's exactly what they see and it's been vetted. All right, I guess we need to dive right into the, the purpose of this podcast um, is cervical or cervicogenic vertigo. And, and there are a lot of different um, ways to get vertigo. So we just want to cover one of those. And, and then towards the end, we will also cover how to distinguish cervicogenic vertigo from BPPV, just because that is the most common cause of vertigo. So we need to make that differentiation. But let's dive into this and let's start off with uh, essentially what causes cervicogenic vertigo. I mean, the, the short answer is any kind of a mismatch of sensory information that temporarily, I'm just gonna say, confuses the brain, you know, but what is causing this? How do we get this, this symptom that haunts our patients? Yeah, and, and we're not completely sure about that, that there's a lot of theories. And the, the leading theory is that all of those proprioceptors and muscle spindles up top, remember, 
50% of the proprioception for our spine comes from the upper two cervical segments. There's a lot of information being processed there and sent to the cerebellum. Same information from the muscle spindles, all of those suboccipital muscles and the deep neck flexors. Those muscles are heavily innervated and they constantly send information to our brain about who's contracting, who's compressed. And when you have a joint that's compressed and muscles that are tight, that sends different information than what your inner ear is saying, what your visual horizon is saying. And the brain has to think of for a minute which one of you is telling me the truth and which one isn't. And fortunately, our brains are good at sorting that out. But for those first couple of seconds, you can get pretty dizzy from that or at least lightheaded. Yeah, this is sometimes tough for patients to understand of what's happening. And I know this end is a, a great um, explanation since we're uh, more in podcast view. But what I do with my patients is I put both my hands out on top of each other. Uh, so fingers together, pointing forward. And I say, listen, Sally, if your head turns 45 degrees to the right, and I move my top hand 45 degrees to the right, However, due to any kind of stiffness, joint restrictions, degeneration, what have you, uh, your lower hand only moves 30 degrees to the right. Unfortunately, your brain said, Sally, you need to move 45 degrees to the right, but Sally's degenerated spine only moved 30 degrees to the right. Now the brain gets confused, and now the patient can see, oh, now I get it. That due to my neck stiffness, pain, uh, what have you, now we have a sensory mismatch. And to correct this, we don't need a magic pill. We don't need some kind of uh, potion. I just need to get my neck moving better. So the most common causes of cervicogenic dizziness and symptoms, the most common things that we see are really neck discomfort and unsteadiness. Um, but really what's causing this and what are the key things that we could hear from a patient that would help um, maybe delineate this diagnosis versus a different diagnosis, Tim? Yeah, probably the signs and the symptoms, that the symptoms typically of somebody with cervicogenic vertigo would be unsteady or lightheaded, whereas other types of vertigo ranging from BPPV or Meniere's or CAD or even central mediated vertigo, oftentimes those are going to be spinning as opposed to just feeling a little drunken. And then the frequency, a lot of those are episodic. Certainly uh, cervicogenic vertigo is episodic and very much related to, to movement. It's also fairly short, that it's gonna, going to last a couple of seconds to maybe a minute or so, whereas other types of vertigo, like a, a uh, central type vertigo, vertigo is gonna be much more continuous. And it's absolutely positional. Now BPPV, as its name implies, is also positional, uh, but typically cervicogenic vertigo will, will tell us the difference because it's not spinning and it's going to be uh, very quick. The other thing that we'll see with those cervicogenic vertigo patients are cervicogenic symptoms, that the patient has some tightness or stiffness or discomfort, things that they're complaining of in their neck. I, I think that spinning feature that you mentioned is probably the most important thing, that if the patient feels they are spinning or the room is spinning, I tend to now at least dive into those orthopedic tests for BPPV. Uh, this is one of those things that, to be honest with you, when I first started practice, I'd be helping a patient up from a, you know, for after manipulating or whatever it is, and they're a little dizzy, and I was like, oh, just sit there, relax, and then a couple seconds go by, okay, good, okay, stand up and let's get you out of here, I got another patient waiting. Uh, and then that turned into a whole new patient population, that now when a patient gets up and they're spinning, and I say, oh, let's take a let's dive deeper into this uh, and now i have a new type of patient that i can treat a new patient population you know think about every single one of your patients 
that has dizziness with getting on and off your table. Uh, that one, we need to rule out any kind of sinister pathology associated with that. But realistically, um, you know, we can be treating those patients, take their blood pressure, rule out some some red flags, and hey, this is someone that I should be treating. Now, once they're done with, you know, treating them for rotator cuff syndrome or uh, lumbar spine dyslesion, that's the next one on my list to treat. Uh, the beauty of these things is that, uh, especially when it comes to cervicogenic vertigo, that as long as we're there to loosen things up and they can do some exercise to keep things loose and do the right exercises within Cairo up, uh, we can help this population fast. In fact, in the next section, Dr. B will go over uh, how fast it's going to be because I think that that's kind of the, the, the key to what we do as evidence-based providers is let's recognize it, let's propose a solution, and let's get down to the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the etiology quickly and, and move forward. So, you know, what are the key findings, the key things you're going to look for in the assessment for cervical vertigo, Tim? Yeah, I look for the, a loss of range of motion, that somebody's neck's not moving as well, and then especially tenderness, that if you have some dizziness and some suboccipital tenderness, that's a, that's a key indicator that this is probably at least a cervical component. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't other things that could be happening concurrently, but at least we know the cervical spine is involved. Sometimes we find that deep palpation of those suboccipital muscles actually provokes the vertigo, not because you're doing anything to the joint, but because you're doing something to the muscle spindles, which remember they're just as important as the joint. When we're, We need to remember that when we're treating those cervicogenic vertigo patients, that it's not just the joint we need to get into motion, it's the muscle spindles that need to be balanced out as well. But we also want to check out all the way down into the SCM and trap that there's a lot of data that says that those muscles are oftentimes involved as well. And mine probably would be too if I got dizzy on a regular basis to stabilize my head, head and body. And then certainly the key finding is that there's a lack of mobility in the upper cervical spine, that C0 or 1 or 2. One of those uh, joints is just not moving the way that it should. So... Upon further inspection, I just realized that behind uh, Tim, he has a balloons that are blown up and a canister of helium. So if that's not enough reason to stick around for the end of this podcast, I don't know what is. Um, it's a, a touch scary. Anyway, um, one of the things that, uh, that Tim brought up is, you know, differentiation. And I think this is important in this diagnosis. Um, however, really for every diagnosis, we need to be aware of, am I dealing with the right system? So in this case, we're looking at the MSK arena when it comes to cervicogenic vertigo. Keep in mind that if you have something musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal uh, that's normally aggravated with movement. Um, and those are the vast majority of people that come in. However, there are people that have chemical problems. And chemical problem, a lot of different chemical problems. Is this step uh, one in your program? <laughs> first step is admitting you have a problem. Um, is uh, And the chemical disorders, they're constant. They're unrelenting. If you have something inflamed, uh, it doesn't really matter what position you're in. It's always irritating. Then we have our metabolic problems, uh, like our diabetes, where we have neuropathy, pastony. You know, there is nothing you're going to do to fix um, diabetic neuropathy in a visit. It just isn't going to happen. But are there things you can do to fix 
Um, lumbar spine radiculopathy that goes past the knee in one visit? Absolutely. Um, and then there's things like organic problems. And that's what, you know, unfortunately can happen with uh, some types of vertigo. And those are unchanged with positions. If you have a brain tumor, it doesn't matter if you're lying down or seated or doing uh, any kind of orthopedic test. It's just there. So uh, that's the, what I want to get into now. So Tim, what is the real difference between BPPV and cervogenic vertigo? Is it just neck involvement? No, uh, absolutely not. That certainly our patients with, with cervicogenic vertigo have pure neck involvement. Those with BPPV means that their semicircular canals have a problem, that we have the three semicircular canals on each side, and then they attach onto a utricle, which holds the fluid. So that's kind of like olive oil. And that fluid then flows through those three hollow canals. They're like horseshoes, and they have tiny hairs inside called cilia, which are actually nerve endings. And as that fluid flows through, as it bends and, and stimulates the nerve endings, that correlates with the information from your eyes and from your cervical spine, and your brain says, here's where I am. Well, sometimes, like any tank of fluid, it's going to develop crud over time. And that crud, those little otoliths that develop, then get caught within one of those hollow horseshoes, one of the semicircular canals. So it's constantly telling your brain that you're in that position, maybe standing on your head or lying on your side. And when your inner ear, I'm sorry, when your eyes and your neck don't agree with what, what one of those semicircular canals is saying, you get dizzy. And it's pretty significantly dizzy. It's a spinning dizziness. Until your brain has a moment to sort that out and say, you know what, one of you is not telling me the same thing as the other, so I'm going to dim that one until you move again. Then as soon as you move, all of a sudden your brain says, hey, where are we? And everybody gets to chime in, including the semicircular canal with that otolith. So the management for cervicogenic vertigo is addressing the neck. The management for BPPV is addressing that crud or that, that stray otolith that's trapped in a canal. The great news is there's a really easy way to do that. You know, we'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But before that, we have a new uh, feature that Dr. Steele doesn't even know about. He alluded to here just a second ago. It's our helium challenge. Oh boy. And in the helium challenge, I'm going to give Dr. Steele three easy lob questions, a questions that really anybody should be able to answer. And if he can answer them correctly, he gets to pass go and collect the $200. If he answers them incorrectly, he has to continue on with a helium balloon in his lungs. So we'll jump right in with question number one. Dr. Steele, where does the majority of balance processing occur in the brain? Uh, cerebellum. Very good. Hopefully you uh, nailed that one at home too. Number two, an equally lob question is according to the National Institutes of Health, approximately, give or take 10, how many neurons are in the cerebellum? <laughs> Hang on, let me, let me help you think. Uh, oh, that's the tank. Now, I do know, I do know that the cerebellum... I'm has, sorry, has that's more, wrong. ...more neurons <laughs> than the cerebellum. I've said the um, uh, the cortex. cortex yeah. You're right. Um, but now uh, 3.5 billion. Oh, you were close. You were very close. You were uh, off only by about 65 billion. It's 69 billion neurons in the cerebellum. And you do get partial credit for knowing that that had far more than the cortex. Yeah. The cortex only has 16 billion neurons. But we still have to call that number two is a wrong answer. So I'm going to fill up a helium 
Helium Balloon. And when we come back, you get to answer the third question. You'll want to stick around for that one. But in the meantime, here's a quick message from Becky. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15 percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, welcome back. Hopefully uh, you've all prepared for this moment. Dr. Steele looks like he's preparing next door. So as you heard, Dr. Steele missed the big question. He did not get 69 billion, right? So what he gets is the helium balloon, which he has in his hands at this moment and is taking a big hit of helium and ready for question number three, Dr. Steele. He's turning a little blue like the balloon. Could you tell us how you would explain cervicogenic vertigo to a patient. I just did. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm getting dizzy at this point. Well, that's good because, because that's the podcast is dizziness. We, we should have done a video. <laughs> I don't think I should have taken the whole balloon there all at once. Uh, <laughs> That was a pretty good lung capacity you demonstrated. <laughs> oh, well, we already did that. We talked about um, uh, the biggest thing with cervicogenic Virgo is uh, the inability for your brain, or sorry, your body to turn as far um, as your uh, your brain would like. That unfortunately, there's a mismatch between the three things uh, that assist in balance. Uh, number one is proprioception, uh, which is going to be from the neck. Number two is going to be from the eyes, and number three is going to be from the ears, or the, the semicircular canals. One of those has gone awry. In this case, it would be the neck. Very good. I like that. So um, another um, another question for you, and this one more serious. How do you differentiate those patients who have BPPV versus cervicogenic vertigo? Are there any tests that you can use that are particularly helpful? Yeah, you know, I, I obviously we're big into orthopedic testing, and it's not because of uh, the the name is just sexy to say. It's that orthopedic testing really does allow you to push on things, pull on things, and make things work. And when you can find a problem with one of those things, then that's normally correlated to their symptoms. And in this case, we really want to expose the neck. And I use the cervical torsion test. Uh, the cervical torsion tests are sometimes called the um, uh, head fixed body turn test. There's a bunch of different names for it, but it's really just a way to get to um, uh, isolate the neck from the semicircular canals because unfortunately, when you turn your head, you also mess with the fluid within the semicircular canals. So one thing you can do, and if you haven't taken a look at this test, don't look on YouTube because <laughs> it's untrusted information. Check it out on Cairo Up, uh, but it's called the Head Fix Body Turn Test. And what it's going to do is you're going to have the patient in front of you on a stool, and the stool needs to be able to rotate. You're going to put both of your hands and support their head as they're looking at you, and then they're going to use their own body to rotate their body while you keep your head, their head fixed on you. 
And the beauty of this is when you can do this, the head does not move, meaning that the, uh, the semicircular canals are not going to move. Um, however, it's going to stimulate those proprioceptive mechanisms in the neck. So if you can do this and it reproduces their vertigo symptoms, then you can be very certain this is coming from the neck. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think as far as a test that we can use. Now, if you look in the research, you're going to see um, always Dick's Hall Pike maneuver. Uh, that's everywhere. And I like this test and I think it can be used significantly. However, the unfortunate part about that test is that it's also very positive for BPPV because you're going to get neck extension and rotation at the same time as the person's laying down. So what I'll do is test number one is Dick's Hallpike maneuver. Hey, you have vertigo. And then what I'll do is the head fixed body turn test and say, oh, this didn't reproduce your vertigo, but Dick's Hallpike did. This is probably BPPV. Or number two rolls around, I do the, rolls around. Uh, I do the head fixed body turn test, and that also reproduces their vertigo. Now I have cervicogenic vertigo. You just turned one minute of evaluation into a correct diagnosis and hopefully helping the person you know get out of their problem. Uh, and I think that's the the, the biggest piece of the the, the puzzle. Um, when you're doing these tests, it's always good to look for nystagmus because when the brain gets confused, it has a very um, constant um, output. And the output is the eyes uh, going back and forth, what we call nystagmus. Now, going back and forth or side to side or left to right or medial lateral, whatever you wanna say, um, that's usually a sign of um, some confusion happening, something like a vertigo type symptom. Now, when it's going up and down, that's another, another uh, possibility. But in the case of BPPV and cervicogenic vertigo, we're looking for horizontal nystagmus. Now, a little fun fact for you, which you did not know is coming, Tim, is that this test is also used when you get pulled over on the side of the highway. Did you know that? I did not. What they're how, looking how for, might you know that? that? What they're looking for is a problem with your cerebellum when you've been drinking too much. So here's a good question for you. So if the policeman does this test on you and have you follow their finger side to side with their eyes going side to side and you get nystagmus, what percent of people have cerebellar impairment in this case for alcohol induced? What percent? What percent of people who have nystagmus with a side to side finger, a lateral gaze are going to be drunk? Mm -hmm. um, 90. 77. 77. Yeah. Uh, so I never knew that, um, but that's a fun fact of the day. Now, one thing they also do in, uh, uh, in tandem with that is they have you walk and then turn around and come back. Do you remember seeing that test uh, on uh, Dr. Michaud? Well, not, <laughs> yes. not yeah, on the side of the highway last Saturday. Uh, no, but Dr. Michaud did that. And I thought that was really interesting that if you just do that test, walk in a straight line, turn around and come back, which requires balance uh, and proprioception for your eyes and gaze and, and, and ears, 68% um, of them um, could not perform that task if they were um, cerebellary in, uh, uh, Impaired is what we'll call it for today's. Um, but it's just interesting because what we're looking for is deficits in balance. And, uh, and if we can reproduce symptoms with orthopedic testing, it can go a long way in, uh, in figuring out what is causing their, uh, their problems. So let's get into treatment. And I think this is where most people, um, we can get the diagnosis. And, and very fortunately for an evidence-based provider, 
it should take you about, you know, maybe five minutes of collecting symptoms, a minute of orthopedic testing, and voila, we now have a, a diagnosis of, of cervicogenic vertigo. What's our treatment look like? What does the research say we should be performing for these patients? Yeah, that as as we might imagine as chiropractors, number one is manipulation. That in fact, Carl Levitt, one of the leading experts in musculoskeletal care, said that in no field is manipulation more valuable in than in dizziness, especially cervicogenic dizziness. And Fitz Ritson, who invented the test that you talked about, the head fixed body turn test, uh, reported 90% success with manipulation in those post-traumatic vertigo cases. We know that between 25 and 80% of patients who are involved in a traumatic injury like a whiplash are going to have some dizziness. They respond very well to manipulation once we've ruled other things out. So manipulation number one. But don't forget that that's only part of that proprioception that comes up top. The muscle spindles are also providing a lot of input. So tightness in the suboccipital muscles, often because there's weakness in the deep neck flexors, is something that we need to address, both by loosening up those those suboccipital muscles with a positional release technique or a nerve flossing of the suboccipital region, but also making sure that we're assessing, is there deep neck flexor weakness? That if that patient doesn't have the ability to have a nice smooth reversal of their cervical curve as they look down at their toes from a supine position, then we can can assume that there's an issue there if they can't hold their head off the table without it shaking. When those tests are positive, then we need to make sure we're addressing that. And a lot of our cervicogenic headache and cervicogenic vertigo patients have deep neck flexor uh, endurance issues. And if you need to look closer at those tests, by all means, jump into Cairo up the test for that, the deep neck flexor endurance test, or you can look at the upper cross syndrome protocol. There's a great webinar. There's a 15 minute to a clinical excellence video. Those are things that can help you move you along that path if that's um, at all confusing. The great news is that you and I as chiropractors have tremendous success with vertigo. In our COP study where we looked at 630,000 different diagnoses, and said, what are the outcomes? We found that the top 10 diagnoses, two of those were vertigo related. Number one is BPPV, the fastest diagnosis to respond. So if you're not doing otolith repositioning maneuvers, by all means, check out that dizziness webinar and look at the videos associated with how to do that. And number six was cervicogenic vertigo. This might take a little longer because there's some muscular involvement as well, but you and I do a tremendous job at solving those those patients' problems. So would it be, I mean, as far as your favorite exercise, you know, what are you sending your patients home with? Um, if it's pure cervicogenic vertigo, um, I probably want to strengthen the deep neck flexors because a lot of other issues... Um, that like a lot of other issues that just keep coming back, there's some sort of a functional deficit there, that there's something that's causing stress to those upper cervical joints and muscles in the first place, and it's probably their workstation, their pillow, their car, their seat, their activities, but those activities have trained their deep neck flexors to be weak, they've trained their traps to be tight, they've trained their pecs to be tight, and that creates more inhibition of the deep neck flexors, so it's a self-perpetuating cycle. So my favorite exercise for that patient would be train the deep neck flexors to make them stronger so that we don't have to do this again in six months. And then take a look at your workstation and make sure that monitor is not too far forward. So many patients move their monitor back a foot or two feet on their desk so that they have plenty of space for their notebook in front. 
And unfortunately, our eyes have a focal distance and it'll find that focal distance. So your head's going to roll forward. And as your head rolls forward, now there's an issue with the suboccipital muscles working too hard and the inhibition of those deep neck flexors. So getting that patient to move their monitor much closer to them, put the bowling ball back up on the table so it's sitting there as opposed to somebody hanging on to the bowling ball all day long will go a long way. So that would be my favorite exercise. That was a long answer for a simple question. All right, deep neck oh, flexors. I was looking for a title of it. Um, I'm, I'm very much the same. Uh, I do find a directional preference works really well for these type of, of patients. And finding a directional preference is important for, one, the diagnosis, but also for the selection of exercise. And a lot of patients that I have found with um, cervical joint vertigo are more of those patients who need retraction or need retraction with um, uh, any kind of rotation, possibly some overpressure to uh, to overcome whatever is limiting that range of motion. Today in chiropractic, because I know you just got back from Parker um, and you had a very interesting statement today and I want to talk about it. Um, you talked about someone who just published a book and uh, her popularity at Parker. And I know you've read the book and I've read the book. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, Lindsay Muma wrote a tremendous book. The book's name is Your Pelvic Floor Sucks. And um, it was really, it was a topic that I was very unfamiliar with as far as pelvic floor dysfunction. And we did a deep dive a, a couple of months ago, probably a couple of years ago now, actually, as to what are the mechanics behind that and what's going on. Because we know the pelvic floor is really the floor of that canister with the diaphragm, the top, and our abdominal muscles. And if the pelvic floor isn't competent, there's going to be a, uh, a leak in many ways as far as a leak of pressure, which means that you can't pressurize the abdomen, which means there's little chance of having a stable spine and long-term recovery. And one of the things that Lindsay's done a tremendous job in her book is describing that how the pelvic floor fits into those mechanics. And more than that, she's done a great job of giving practical exercises for how to overcome that, that she really gives women hope that nine out of 10 women who have had a vaginal birth are going to have pelvic floor dysfunction. Well, that's a big chunk of the population and it also affects a good chunk of men. So well over half the population has some degree of issue there. Lindsay gives good practical advice as far as how, how to make that um, not quite as much of a burden in your patient's lives. So it's something regardless of if you treat it or not, you need to be aware of it and we need to know how to direct those patients to find outcomes and to find hope and, and to regain their lives. So Lindsay did a great job of that and she made it fun and funny. That's a book that has a lot of anecdotes. She writes in a style that she, she really feels like she's just one of your buddies that you're talking to and she is one of our buddies, but she did a great job in, in the book. Yeah, and she's um, actually donating half her profits to me if you want to enter in code. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it was a great book. So I, I really can't add anything to to what uh, Tim just said. Uh, Dr. Muma is, is really advancing the profession, and we appreciate everything she's doing. Um, I spent my weekends doing less interesting things, but uh, no less important things. Um, that uh, Dr. Burles and myself are both part of the Illinois Chiropractic Society. I still serve on the board. And one thing we did was to get on the board and to develop a, strate a strategic plan for the, uh, the year. And the reason I bring that up as far as in this section is that it's important you understand what your association does. Now, if you don't like what your association does, great, join it. If you do like what your association does, great, get more involved. And the reason I say that is because we're so fragmented in our profession that we need to get together, be around the same table, 
and to get stuff done. Uh, and there's no better place to do that than your state association. So uh, while it's a, I look at a lot of the younger providers, like, what does state association do? Why, why should I be involved? I kind of thought the same thing. Um, however, 15 years later, I'm still going to the meetings and I'm still doing it because it is the best thing to see our profession succeed. So um, I appreciate everyone uh, checking out this podcast. Uh, once again, if you haven't already, uh, please be sure to follow Mike Up at Cairo Podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a review. Uh, and also, I will say that I love the feedback that we get, both from the blog and now from the podcast. Uh, and we're uh, here to hear from you. Uh, we want to hear your biggest takeaway or more ideas on future podcasts. So thanks for listening and uh, send some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.